The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very honored and excited to introduce to you my special guest this week, Dick Vermeil, legendary NFL head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, St. Louis Rams, which he led to a Super Bowl victory in 2000 in the Kansas City Chiefs. Coach, it's a real honor to have you on the show. Hey, Jim. Nice to be able to make a contribution here. I'm excited about it. Nice to talk with you. Well, I appreciate your making the time and your unbelievably busy schedule. I know you've been up in Indianapolis and on a number of shows. Uh, as an NFL agent and avid football fan, I wanted a guest this week that embodied the sport and industry in the way that you do. You're a one-of-a-kind human being in person. I've known you for quite long. I actually represented a number of players that played for you on the Rams and the Chiefs, and so it was it is indeed an honor to have you on the show. I want to I want to be able to give a little background um, uh, to some of our listeners. This show goes into 180 plus countries and uh, is downloaded and listened to live. And so for those of you, few people who may not know, Dick Vermeil is a legendary football coach. He was named Coach of the Year numerous times on many levels of the game, high school, junior college, NCAA Division One, and professional football. He is in the Sid Gilman coaching tree and has taken the Philadelphia Eagles, St. Louis Rams, and the Kansas City Chiefs to the playoffs by his third season as a coach. He won the Super Bowl in 2000. Coach Vermeil has also spent time with CBS and ABC as a sports announcer and was featured in the 2006 film uh, Invincible. Uh, Dick, welcome to the show. I'm very happy to have you on it during Super Bowl weekend. Hey, thank you. You can't believe how nice it is in Indianapolis. It's that they've done a beautiful job, and the weather is absolutely spectacular. This is the first time they've had it, isn't it, in a cold weather, or what they consider a no, cold weather they environment? Had it in Remember they had it in Detroit when the 49ers beat Cincinnati That's in correct. 1982, uh, Super Bowl 16. Uh, if this goes off real good, I think we'll see the game move to other sites, but I don't think we'll ever see you know February weather like this again. Yeah, we're fortunate today. So when we start this show, and this was a show that, that I began called A Current Life, it's about the journey of life as the ups and downs that we all have to overcome to get to where each of us is meant to be or what we would term success. And so on that note, I'd like to start with your early years growing up. I think it was in Calistoga, California, if I'm correct. 
Yes, I grew up in uh, Calistoga, the north end of the Napa Valley. I was born in my great-grandfather's home, believe it or not, and the home's still there. It's now a doctor's office, but uh, I'm very proud of my heritage and my family and, and my roots there in Calistoga in the Napa Valley. Did you, uh, did you grow up knowing kind of, uh, I mean, were, did you play sports, and what were some of the things that you liked to do and, and, and particularly disliked? Doing. Well, Jim, you know, a small community like Calistoga, when I grew up, there were 1,800 people in it. There were 130 kids in my high school, 29 in my graduating class. So you, as a young boy, if you didn't compete on an athletic team, then they didn't have enough guys to have them. We had a football team, a basketball team, a baseball team, and a track team. And I competed at all four of them because they needed all the boys, you know. Was there a particular sport like football that you immediately kind of you know felt was your sport, or did you just do them all and like them all? I did them all, liked them all, but I really loved football. My dad was a high school football player, loved the game. When I was a senior in high school, uh, a young coach came out of College of Pacific, now called University of Pacific, and took over the head coaching job. And his name was Wilbur Wood, and he sort of inspired me to really get involved with football, and he inspired me to go on to college because I hadn't planned to do that. And he inspired me to be a football coach, and uh, that started me going. But it all started on a small high school football field in Calisoga with 19 kids on the team. You know, I'm, I'm a father of, of four boys, and, and my sons played football, and then one of them stopped playing, and I remember when he decided to stop playing, he said to me, I'm, I really would like to quit football, but I don't want to do it if you have a problem with that, and I told him, it's your life, and you do what you need to do. Did you go through any of those things with your father, or was it really just different, and you know, uh, what were some of those uh, moments like with your dad? No, not really. Uh, my dad was sort of the kind of guy, if you if you made a commitment and joined a team, you stayed on it until the season was over. So, I, I you know, and plus, if you, uh, you did not uh, stay on a team, they could possibly not have enough members to have a team. <laughs> you know, you know, we'd have a track team with six or seven kids on it as we drove over. We could go to a track meet in somebody's family car, you know. So, you know, th- that was the way he was. You know, he was a uh, simple, hardworking guy, wonderful, loyal, uh, unbelievably honest human being that ran uh, an old garage in Calistoga. That's what he always wanted to do. And he was interested in auto racing, and that interested me in auto racing as well. And, uh, you know, it was just a very simple humble way uh, to grow up, but a very, very uh, uh, wonderful way to grow up. You know, there were very few uh, limits growing up in that valley. You know, you could just about do anything you wanted to in that little small community, and and the entire city would discipline you if you did something wrong. Well, what was it that you think really made you fall in love with football? Was there something that just in particular with the sport? I mean, you're so gifted in your knowledge and have done so many things in the sport to make the contribution you've made. What were some of the things that really just just drew you to it? Well, you know, uh, I love the competition of it. I like the contact phase of it. I love the technicalities of the game, and I really didn't understand it when I played it, especially early in my career. But I, I love drawing the plays, and I was fascinating. I'd sit in the college classroom as a, as a, a senior in high school. Once I got playing my, my senior year, and I'd be drawing my own plays and talking to my high school coach. And you know, and I went into junior college, I was doing the same thing, and on into college, I was doing the same thing. And you know, I, I, it just kept growing, and, I, and it became a, a thought on my mind that I couldn't turn off. You know, I, I just couldn't turn it off, and that's when I made up my mind. I, I wanted to be a high school football coach. 
Did you have a favorite star that you followed? Well, you know, as, as a young boy growing up in the Napa Valley, you followed the 49ers, Joe Perry, Hugh McElhaney, you know, all those kind of guys. Frankie Albert, Bob St. Clair, Leo Namalini, Billy Wilson, you know, Bob Tonoff, all these great 49ers, you know. But, and I can remember listening to on the radio. My dad would take my brother and I to a game once a year. It was a big outing for us to drive to San Francisco and back. Uh, it was, you know, but a family experience that I still remember and think about to this day. Well, you attended San Jose University, and you I think your position was quarterback. And, right. And is that, uh, what, what were some of the differences when you went to the university uh, you know, to play football. Was it a well, big I was so naive. I hadn't been exposed to a high caliber of football, you know, a little high school, a little junior college. And uh, I walked on without a scholarship, and at the end of spring practice, Bob Bronson awarded me a scholarship. It was a 75 no, hundred, yeah, $75 a month, I think, work aid type program at that time. You wow. played both ways. Uh, you know, in my junior year, I didn't get to play much. I was a backup. My senior year, I became the starting quarterback. But Bob Bronson, the head football coach there, inspired me uh, a lot because he was a very intense, very intelligent, bright man, a great teacher, very much respected, but a little bit feared. And uh, he uh, kept talking to me uh, in the vein beyond where I was thinking of going. You know what I mean? He He saw in me things that I didn't see in myself, and that is when I got my first head coaching job in high school, he called me up on the phone, and said, I was an assistant coach in high school, and he said, Dick, a man is going to call you, listen to what he has to say, then accept the job, <laughs> and it's exactly what happened. A man named Frank Collin called me. The athletic director at Hillsdale High School in San Mateo called me up, visited with me. He said, Bob Bronson, who I have a great deal of respect for, has recommended you to take my job as the head football coach, and I will work with you. And uh, I was wondered if you're interested, if you are, coming up and talk with me. So I went up, met with the principal, Ray Alley, and, uh, and Frank Collin, and I took the job. But it was all motivated by... Robert Bronson, Dr. Robert Bronson, both the professor and the head football coach in the athletic department at San Jose State University. You know, as, as I've done this show, and I think we're probably entering our 15th week, uh, and I've had the chance to talk to a lot of people you know and, and, and that we share uh, different uh, opportunities with, like Bob Costas and Leslie Stahl and Oscar Robertson and, and General Hugh Shelton and the people that we've had on this show. Uh, they always, we talk a lot about what were some of the opportunities they were given uh, as they grew through their lives and as younger to, you know, into college and so on, and what were some of the specific obstacles that they faced? Because, you know, in this country today, we're all facing a upside-down situation, a dysfunctional set of circumstances, a government that's not working well, people out of work, and, you know, football is such a, as, as every sport is so, is so important to so many people today, and particularly football. What, what were some of the particular opportunities or obstacles that maybe you encountered along the way? Well, I, I think first, my first opposite obstacle was my own lack of expectations, and, and people kept installing in me higher levels of expectation. You know, I never really 
thought about being a college football coach. I wanted to be a high school football coach. In my second year in, in coaching, I'm a head football coach in high school, and we experience success. We win championships. I'm coach of the year, and all of a sudden I have an opportunity to go to junior college. Uh, and, and then I said, my gosh, can I coach on this level? You know, And someone would say, yeah, yes, you can. That's why we're hiring you, and that's why we would like you here. You know, And, and the players around me uh, inspired me, even at that age, 23, 24 years old, the young high school kids really inspired me and I could see that uh, uh, I, I had a certain ability to connect with people and and I really loved being with them and uh, you know it just fortunately for me I just never turned down an opportunity once they started coming well you know I, I, I think a lot of what goes into coaching uh, I've done it on a on a smaller level with you know, our high school and, and with the club coaching, you know, in the younger leagues with both my kids for six years, uh, other than trying to manage parents' expectations for their kids, which I've talked about in clinics with Marvin Lewis, I guess I would ask you, you know, there is a psychology to it. And, and, no question, and yes. You have to really like people and you have to understand people, right? Yeah, no question. You know, and uh, if, I, if, I, if I could define one strength that I have, I think is uh, I have a great compassion for other people, and I, I think my grandfather uh, Vermeil, uh, my dad's dad, and I, uh, we had, we as kids were raised with our grandparents being held with such high esteem right. by our parents, and it, it reflected a very positive image of those people. And you would listen to what they said. And my grandfather Vermeil used to always say to me, "Now, Dick, you just make sure you always treat people." better than you want them to treat you and your life is going to be a very successful life i have never forgotten that well did you ever dream i mean at that time that you would make the type of living that you've made and in, in, no. in, in the sport my <laughs> wife and i carol drake at that time carol Vermeil, we got married at 19 when i left junior college wow. and went to san jose state and she went to work full-time okay and we were, and I, I wanted to be a high school football coach, you know, and, and that was it. Initially, I wanted to be a race driver. That's what I dreamt about doing. You know, being here in Indianapolis, the first thing I did when I got into town was went over to the Indianapolis race track, not to uh, Lucas uh, Oil Stadium or to the uh, Super Bowl Hotel. I went over to the racetrack, walked through the museum, just started remembering how I wanted to be a race driver because my dad was in racing and that kind of stuff. But anyway, uh, fortunate for me, uh, I didn't make that decision, and, <laughs> and I moved on into football, probably where I had better talent to, to be successful. Did you have any other odd jobs or other types of jobs before you entered the sports business? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, our second year of marriage, we had our first child, and I never wanted my wife to work, and I'm still going to school. So I worked around the clock sometimes to stay in school, stay in school, get my master's degree. And plus, I was raised in a garage. The garage was right behind the house in Calistoga. So by the time I left junior college, I was a journeyman mechanic. So the athletic department, most of those coaches and teachers weren't making a lot of money. So my dad had a friend that owned an auto parts store in uh, San Jose, and I could buy auto parts wholesale. So I would buy carts, uh, car parts for the different coaches and instructors in the physical education and athletic department that need to work on their car. I would do the work and charge them half the labor they would be charged 
to take it to a garage, and I, I, I could make money and feed my wife and child and meet my expenses and pay my rent as I went on through school and got my master's in general secondary. But so I was working as a mechanic. Then when I went became a high school coach in the summer, I, I worked as a mechanic in a garage at Vince's Flying A Garage in San Jose. And uh, a wonderful human being, just so nice. He used to give me the keys to the garage and let me work there after they locked it up and just turned in my hours the next day when I reported to come to work after school, after football practice, whatever it may be. So, and I think you started coaching high school and moved on to college coaching. And then in 1969, you were hired by uh, actually a very old dear friend of mine, George Allen of the Los yes. Angeles Rams. Uh, right. Um, as the NFL's first ever special teams coach. How'd that all come about? Peyton Jordan was the head track coach at Stanford University. He was a good friend of George Allen. George Allen called Peyton Jordan one time and asked him if he knew there was a young coach around that had some enthusiasm and intensity about him that might want to be the first special team coach in football. I was on my fourth year or fifth year coaching Stanford as an assistant football coach with John Ralston, and he said, yes, Dick Vermeil. Well, George Allen called me up. I was in Southern California recruiting uh, for Stanford University, and he called me up, and I went over and met with him. And I was so excited to meet George Allen. We visited, and, and a week later he called me and offered me the job, and I took it. So I went down there, and I spent a weird do year doing that. And I loved the job. I loved George Allen and, and the Roman Gabriels and the Deacon Jones. I just saw Deacon Jones a minute ago and uh, here at a Hall of Fame luncheon. And uh, then Tommy Prothrow at UCLA, a great football coach, called me up and asked me if I would come over and run his offense for him. And I always wanted to meet Tommy Prothrow because I felt they were the best coach college team in the West, and I wanted to learn how they, they did the things that they did so well. So I took the job and went over there. And uh, I coached there a year, and they fired George Allen with the Rams and brought Prothrow back to the Rams to be the head coach. So I went back with Prothrow from UCLA to the Rams to be the uh, offensive coordinator for him there. Then they, later on, three years later, Pepper Rogers leaves UCLA, and they call me up and ask me to come back and be the head coach at UCLA. So, now, you know, now that was amazing. around 1975, wasn't it? Around yes, it that was. time, yeah. And then, and we won the Rose Bowl after the '75 right. season. And the Eagles called me up and asked me if I'd come and coach the Eagles. Well, I know you won. You were that was the first when the Bruins won the Rose Bowl. That was yes. the first conference championship in ten years when you won, and it was over Ohio State. Ohio State, Jim, had beaten us 42-10 to 10 in the regular season that year. <laughs> and, but we ended up winning the conference championship by beating USC. And they were the number one team in the country, undefeated. You know, when they had a great football team, you know, and uh, yeah, Archie Griffin, you know, Tom oh, Fox, sure. and the old Heisman Trophy winner. And, those guys, and we upset them in the Rose Bowl. It's still considered the biggest upset in the history of the Rose Bowl. Now, and we won that, and one, that's, you, that inspired Leonard Toast from the Philadelphia Eagles to fly out. He actually flew out, didn't call me, flew out, set up camp in the Beverly Hills Hotel and started calling me on the Monday morning after the Saturday, Saturday Rose Bowl. Can you point to one thing? I know this is probably ridiculous, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The, that when you go from, in 1975, and you win the Rose Bowl, and you beat a team that had, you know, obviously... Uh, had beaten you, and that and that was number one in the nation. What what was it in the game plan that really turned that around? That particular game, because it was an incredible. I mean, I don't think anybody picked you to win in that game, did they? No, we were twenty one point underdog. 
Wow. Well, I think the one thing that turned us around was the work ethic of my coaching staff and my players. We had established a tremendous work ethic within those kids. And then when we got better, we kept getting better. We caught, By the end of the year, we were a pretty good football team, though we'd beaten, gotten beaten a couple times during the early season. But then we have, you know, 15 days to get ready to play the Rose Bowl, and we we really worked hard. And by the time we played Ohio State game day, we were not the same team that had gotten beaten 42 to 10. But lucky for us, Ohio, thought, Ohio State thought we were. And we were so emotionally ready to be as good as we could possibly be. And Ohio State really didn't think we were that good. And they could never get going. They just couldn't fathom that we were the same team that they'd already beaten 42 to 10. So I think uh, our improvement and their uh, lack of ability to take us serious over the preparation of the game and being in Southern California and going to the Beef Bowl, going to the Disneyland, I think they already thought they won the game. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, it all worked to our favor. And so I had in some fun ni- players. So shortly thereafter, in 1976, you actually became the head coach for the Eagles. Yes. Uh, until 1982. Right. Tell me that transition. So they flew down to come and get you. Basically, they'd made up their mind that they wanted. What, what was that all like? Well, I mean, and especially because you, I mean, what was going through your mind and your head at that time when, when right after winning the Rose Bowl, uh, what happened? Well, you know, my thoughts were, you know, we can win a national championship here if we keep doing a good job. And we were recruiting heavy. We were going to have a great uh, a great recruiting class coming in, all that stuff, and I didn't want to leave. And I never thought about being a head coach of the National Football League. Mm-hmm. So I told Leonard Toast I was not interested. And then he'd call on Monday, and I'd said, I'm not interested. He'd call <laughs> on Wednesday, I'd said, I'm not interested. He says, well, it would only take you 10 minutes to drive over here to visit with me. So I agreed to go over and visit with him on that Thursday morning. On Wednesday, I told my coaching staff what was going on. And they, to a man, my ten coach staff, ten man coaching staff, said to me, "Coach, you're crazy. You should go over and listen to what they have to say." Well, so I went over there, you know. So I went over there and met with them, and I was very impressed with them. And they uh, offered me the job flat out, and told me I would be in charge of everything to do with football, from personnel to everything else. I wouldn't have to negotiate the contracts, but I'd tell them who to sign and who not to sign. And I could hire my staff, do whatever I want, control everything there is to do with football. And, geez, you know, and I, I still was going to say no. So I talked to George Allen, and Coach Allen says, you know, the owner out there has been firing a lot of people, but you might be the guy he needs. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I said, well, Coach, everybody else I've talked to told me not to take the job. He's not the kind of guy you want to work for. He says, you know, there may not be another time in your career that an owner of an NFL team get, wants to give you a coaching job, okay, and and, and almost double your salary. I went from going $30,000 a year to $50,000 a year. I said, oh, my gosh, I never phantom. I never even thought uh, of making that kind of money. I thought, my God, what would I do with that kind of money, you know? So I took the job. I took the job. Was I, your wife in favor of it? Remember yeah. uh, Ed Hookstratton? Oh, sure. It was Eddie Hookstratton that they hired and paid him a fee to hire me and do the contract. Wow. So you become head coach, and in 1980, you take them to their first Super Bowl in franchise history. Right. And we got named the NFL Raiders. Coach of the Year. 
And and then you go to the Super Bowl. Uh, you lead the Eagles in the Super Bowl. What? So 1981, you're in the Super Bowl. No, uh, yeah, the January of 81, we're in the Super Bowl. The next year, we come out in 82. We got beat by the Raiders. We turned the ball over. We didn't play well. And we were a little banged up going into the ball game. And I was probably too tight myself. But anyway, as the head coach and leader. Because in those days, I was the head coach. I was my offensive coordinator. I was my quarterback coach. I was personnel director. I was, I was everything. But anyway, uh, we got beat. The next year we came out, we win the first six straight games of the season, the first six games that were the only undefeated team in football. And we ended up, I think, 11 or 12, 12. And we ended up in the playoffs and got beat by uh, Parcells and the New York Giants in 1980. Not Parcells. Uh, no, it wasn't Parcells. It was Perkins who was the head coach then, Ray Perkins. And we got beat by them in the playoffs, and they went on, and we went home. And in 82, we had the strike year. That's and right. Was, uh, the, the, we were out nine weeks, if you'll remember, and uh, at the end of that season, I decided I was going to take a year off because I, I had allowed a passion to become an obsession, and I just oh. could not turn the game off. And uh, I was becoming a less effective football coach, Jim, because I couldn't get over the pain of a loss, and I didn't enjoy or even a short period of time, the thrill of win. Because all of a soon as I would win one, I'd start thinking about the next game and what I should have done to do a better job in the game we won. And it was a total distraction uh, to being a good leader, being a good head coach. And I just I coined the phrase, I just burned myself up and out. So I, I, I left. I thought I'd take a year off and then come back. And CBS offered me a broadcasting job, and I went from making $75,000 a year to $150,000 a year, working 18 weekends. So, so let me ask you a bad. question, because obviously there are two teams in the Super Bowl Sunday, and I've often wondered what goes on in a coach's mind, not when he wins the Super Bowl, but when he loses. Well, you know, you have the agony of defeat is worse than, than the thrill of win, okay? <laughs> right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, and I've told people The low that, is much that, greater than the high. No question. It's easier to describe the low than it is to describe the high. But since having the opportunity to go out, go in broadcasting, regroup myself physically and emotionally, and then go back into coaching and then have the opportunity to win a Super Bowl, I recognize this, Jim. It takes the same thing as an organization to go to a Super Bowl and lose the game as it does to go there and win it. Unlike the NBA or unlike the NFL, the positive if you win it, it's, it's not the best of seven. It's the best of one. You win it, you're the champion. The negative of this NFL is if you lose it, it's over. You can't play the second, third, fourth game to find out if you're good enough to beat them, you know, three out of five. You know what I mean? So uh, I, I learned to respect the fact. In fact, I, I've said this many times. My Eagle team in five years worked harder and longer to go to a Super Bowl and lose it than my Eagle team did in three years to go there and win it. And, and I gained more respect for that effort and those kids and what they did, and my coaching, and my organization, and what we all accomplished together. And I tell each coach that ever loses a big game like this, this story, in and, and, and hopes that they will appreciate what a wonderful job they did to get there, even though they didn't get, you know, the Lombardi Trophy. Well, I always felt, 
in in the time that we've known each other, and and it does go back a ways, uh, back uh, St. Louis and Kansas City and things like that. That uh, you understand the concept of adversity. That sometimes you you learn from your failures or your losses even better than you do from your victories and your gains. And no question, I, you know, I know Jim, that's let, what's happened yeah. to me in my life. Sure, Jim. You know, we all learn it. You know, who helped me learn it was John Wooden. Uh, John Wooden told me my first year at UCLA, he was there, and he says, Coach, you know, I know you're going to have a successful career. I see if you're really passionate about what you do. He says, but the wins in your career will not determine how successful you are in your career. It will be how you handle the losses. He says, people that are successful in our professions are people that do a great job of handling the, the lows of their career and use them to motivate themselves and get better. And, and, and don't point the finger and blame this and blame that. He says, don't worry about the scoreboard. Worry about making everybody you have in your organization the best he could possibly be. And in doing that, the results will take care of itself. That's exactly what he told me, and I have told that to a thousand people. Well, I'll tell you, I, uh, we're going to take our one break. Our sponsors, Ohio Midwestern College, uh, and uh, Smart Water and Ads Baseball Network uh, understand how honored we all are to have you on this show. At oh, this thank you, Jim. Time. I'm having fun. And we'll take one break, and I want to come back and talk about the Rams. I want to talk about the Vineyards, and I want to talk a little bit about life in general. So we're with the legendary coach, Super Bowl winner, Dick Vermeil, on Super Bowl weekend. It's Jimmy Gould with A Current Life. Please stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. At Wild Things. We've been making alpine clothing and packs right here in the USA since 1981. In fact, we began by stitching together extremely light climbing gear that guys on the mountain were trying to make on their own. It was a big deal in 1981, making Wild Things the gear of choice for some of the world's most demanding alpine climbers. Of course, the climbs and the climbers are now the stuff of legend. Inspiration for the next group to realize the freedom of moving over rock and ice in a fast and light way. The rest, three decades of elation, misery, epics, and near misses, we put back into everything we make. Light, durable, functional, packable. Wild Things gear is made and tested by those who live in it. Available exclusively at wildthingsgear.com. Stay wild. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. 
If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is a current life at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and we're honored to have with us Dick Vermeil, a legendary football coach, Super Bowl winner in 2000 on this Super Bowl weekend. Uh, coach, let me ask you, uh, you started coaching for the St. Louis Rams in 1997, and uh, how long did it really take you to get comfortable in that position and, and really to take that team, which you ultimately did, to win the Super Bowl uh, with Kurt Warner as your quarterback? Well, Jimmy, you know, uh, after having been out for 14 years, you can really well imagine that, boy, I was swimming. And I I, I, I did some smart things in that I, I hired a very experienced staff. I brought in a good friend who had just been fired by the Raiders as a head coach, Mike White, that we worked together at Stanford and maintained sure. a very close personal relationship. So I had someone that had been doing it uh, to lean on and other people around me to lean on and, and experienced guys like Jim Hannafin and Bud Carson and Peter Junta and these kind of guys. And then I hired a few of my former players that had been in coaching, Carl Harrison, John Bunning, you know, these kinds of guys. I made a coach out of Wilbert Montgomery. But, uh, uh, I was swimming. I really was. And there were times in training camp I said, geez, I hope I'm not in over my head. But I gradually caught up because I, I still had a philosophy and a belief as to how you had to do it. And I, I've always believed the only way you get better is to work hard. And when you're not as good as somebody that's already beating you, that is also working hard, you've got to find a way to work harder and longer. So that's what we did for two years. And I gradually got back into the, the swing of it and the leadership responsibilities because, in a, and I learned uh, the hard way that leaderships of high profile positions is a shared leadership position. Share the responsibilities with people. Uh, uh, bring them in the inner circle of the organization. Give them responsibilities. Back them and, and let them do it. And, and make sure everybody in the building is joining as you go through the adversity and you're getting better and you remain positive and, and you come to work every day with the reflection that you come to work intending to win. It may take a while, but sooner or later we are going to do it. And uh, that's how we built uh, the Rams and my after my second year I knew we were getting a lot better no one else did but by all the little things you know all the little things in coaching a football team compound one thing leads to another and uh, we come into the third year I can remember telling John Shaw I said John this is going to be a playoff team and he said don't tell me that I've been told that by many times, only to be it down. I said, this is going to be a playoff team. And they did a good job. Jay Zygman and John did a great job of, of recruiting and signing Trent Green to be our quarterback. Then he gets hurt. You know, so we go with Kurt Warner, and Kurt Warner goes way beyond the expectations. And, and he goes from scout team player of the year to the most valuable player in the National Football League. So, you know, uh, we we did the right things in evaluating him, and, and we did the right things in seeing some intrinsic things in him that, that, that tell you, you know, hey, this guy might be pretty good. Maybe all he needs is an opportunity. And But he went beyond our expectations. And so, you know, and I knew the team would be a playoff team i didn't know they would be a world championship team but by the middle of the season my theme with the entire team was guys there's only one team in the national football league that can beat this team fortunate for us they're in our locker room 
And if we keep doing the, th- the things the way we're doing them, with the tempo and concentration and focus and the togetherness and the caring for each other and the esprit de corps, we are going to be almost impossible to beat. Well, they made that conversation come true. But I asked him to keep those comments in the locker room. I didn't want to read them in the newspaper. I didn't want to hear them on the radio or see them on television. I wanted that to be part of our foundation, but I wanted only our family to know about it. And, you know, therefore, by the time we got there, we went into the Super Bowl with unbelievable confidence that we were going to win the football game. You know, and, and fortunate for us, we did. It came down to the one-foot line, but we still won. The end result doesn't matter if they were on the one-inch line or 30-yard line. We still won the football game. Well, well, I know, made I, my mistake was going home after we won it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I, um, I experienced that season with you. I had a player on the team, and obviously uh, we both have been fortunate to have gotten to know Georgia Frontier and, yeah. of course, Chip Rosenblum, who's responsible for you know, really bringing you and me together for this show. Uh, Chip is a very dear friend, one of my best friends in the world. And, you know, when I when I asked him for Super Bowl weekend who would be his choice, uh, he said either you or Deacon Jones. And, and, and it said a lot about Chip. I mean, Chip is well, very thank fond you. of you. I just left Deacon Jones at the Hall of Fame luncheon. And, well, <laughs> you said that, and and you know, you personify such a rarity in this ga- uh, sport. Uh, I saw that when you coached. I saw that the way the players reacted to you and responded to you that year was a that year was a phenomenal year. Uh, you know, you you went on and 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 really did something through a lot of adversity. I mean, nobody think thought that Kurt Warner would step up or that you would be able to take that team and win a Super Bowl. And, and in the way you did it, and the end of that game was so incredible. Um, you know, it just was incredible. And, and I got to know Georgia pretty well, and I just think that that was such a strong part of their life and such a pivotal moment in their life. And I oh, know yeah. how appreciative they all were to you. And, you know, and then I'm sure leaving was difficult for you. Uh, yeah, you know, something, I would, you know, I'm such an emotional guy, and sometimes it's a strength but sometimes it's a weakness, and at that time it was a weakness. I was so drained emotionally, that, and I put so much of myself into those three years that when we won it, and I, I, you know, I said, oh, my gosh, an opportunity to go home, a world champion. How many coaches ever get to finish a career in their 60s a world champion? And I said, and I remember I have a Coach of the Year trophy that I was awarded in 1980, and it has the names of all the Coaches of the Years that have won it before me. And over half of them had been fired after they won Coach of the Year. So I said, you know, I could prevent that from happening to me. And plus, my kids wanted me home. You know, my family wanted me home. Sure. And uh, so I said, you know, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home. Well, it took a little time, but you know, I remember Georgia saying, Dick, take three weeks off. Go somewhere with Carol, and then come back, and let's talk about it. And uh, I didn't want to do that, because first off, we had time commitments to decide who we were going to sign and not resign, free agency, and all that kind of stuff. And a leader in that frame of mind, that leadership period of time is extremely critical. And there's no way to to delegate those decision-making processes. You have to be the guy and, and, and lead everybody through those processes. And I was not in the frame of mind to do that. I did not want to cut the squad. 
I did not want to say we can't re-sign this guy. You know, and so it was sort of a cop-out on my part. Plus, my kids said, Dad, you've gotten something done you always wanted to do once you went into coaching. It's time to come home and be with but, us. We, we need you, okay? So I listen, and I go home. Well, I go in Georgia. You know how Georgia, she puts on a Super Bowl ring party that's probably the best that's ever been put on in the history of the league. And I go there, and I'm handing out the rings. And you know how emotional I am. I'm in tears for two hours handing out these rings to people I really cared about and loved. And I said, oh, my gosh, what did I do? I love my family and everything else, but, boy, this is the other part of my family. And I went home. Then Carl Peterson approached me after that following season and said, we'd like you to come and coach our football team. And Carl had been with me at UCLA. He had been with me at the Eagles. You know, he'd been a, had done a great job with the Chiefs. He'd offered me the job when he got the job, and I wouldn't go. And, you know, all of a sudden I said, you know, I'm going to do it. So uh, uh, it took a little work, but I ended up, I took the job and went back. And it's actually the first job I ever took I felt totally prepared to do. <laughs> Well, I've known Carl forever because we were two of the architects of the USFL, and no and, uh, yeah. and I've known him forever. And one of the things about having you on this show, word gets out, and we already have a caller who I think is a very old friend of yours. So, uh, Reggie, you on the line? Reggie? Yes, I am. How are you, Reggie? Well, Reggie, uh, this is Jimmy Gould. Nice to meet you over the phone, and... Do you have a question for your friend, Coach Dick Vermeil? Well, <laughs> my question, my question is: uh, Do you remember an old head linebacker from the? Uh, oh, he's my first high pick, my that, third year, <laughs> third round pick, Georgia Tech. I love this guy. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, Coach? I'm doing great. Wonderful to hear your voice. It's funny. Absolutely. I'm sitting here in an airport in Indianapolis talking to you. You're there, uh, I'm sure, with your wife and sitting there in Philadelphia getting ready to watch a, uh, a Super Bowl this coming Sunday. But uh, I know, you know, people don't know this, Jim, but when I, I left the Rams, I went to work for Reggie. <laughs> I went to work for the <laughs> I heard Rams. that somewhere. I think Bill Strickland told me that. My number two son had already been working for him for a few years, and he was training him in the financial world and all that kind of stuff and helped shape his career. So uh, here I am talking to my uh, left outside linebacker, Reggie Wilkes, and and my first high pick after three years at the Eagles, a third-round pick out of Georgia Tech. A great pick and a great person, a great family man. Well, I, I can say the same thing about my coach. And I tell you, the measure of a man is not necessarily just what he helps players do on the field, but a measure of a true friend and coach. It's one that supports you way past the time the game has passed you by. And, and Dick has been a like a father, like a friend, like a brother to, to me. And my, my children know just how important, my wife knows just how important he has meant to me over the years. So... Anything I can ever do for Dick, he knows I will do for him. And I think that is pretty consistent, maybe 100% consistent with every player that is known and played for him. Well, I'll tell you, Reggie, first of all, uh, I appreciate your calling. Uh, you're correct about that. I mean, uh, Dick, you got a lot of people that care a great deal about you and respect you a great deal. And it's a tough sport, and, and you know, uh, it's a competitive sport. We're in that weekend where everything is going on, but... Uh, I knew you would enjoy hearing from Reggie. So, uh, oh, wonderful! You, he knows how I feel about him. 
So, Reggie, no, thank you so much for calling in, and thanks, I appreciate Reggie. it. And enjoy your weekend on Super Bowl weekend. Yeah. Coach, thank you. See you soon. I love you too, buddy. Bye bye. Bye bye. So, Coach, let me ask you. So, in 2001, Carl gets you to sign on with the Chiefs, and under your instruction, they were recognized at the time as having an outstanding offense. What do you think was the key to really their more aggressive offense and kind of some of the things that you know you led them through? I think it was about four years, correct? With the Chiefs, I five years. Yes, five years. Five years, and we went to playoffs in '03, and then we. Uh, in fact, we won nine straight coming out of the blocks. We were the best team in football at that time. We got beat by Peyton Manning in the only playoff game in the history of the NFL. There was no punt. You know, we didn't have to suit up our punter either side. Neither team could stop each other. But but we had a touchdown call back, and uh, that killed us. But anyway, uh, uh, the whole secret of that team, of course, was the leadership from the top. Lamar Hunt, uh, just one of the great yeah. human beings and one of the great contributors to the sports world, specifically the, hey, the Lamar Hunt Trophy, the naming of the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl game, uh, and the building of the AFL to the, uh, you know, and combining it with the NFL, and it's just a wonderful human being. And working for him was a great experience. And, and their leader was Carl Peterson, who was like my oldest son, you know. And uh, so we had a great time working there. My wife loved it. I loved my players. We, we built a good team. I just could never put together a good enough defense. And, you know, sometimes, you know, and I go back and I think of some mistakes I made. I didn't re-sign a couple defensive tackles that they had there when I came there that it ended up, I was never able to replace their talent. And they weren't the high attitude, good attitude guys that I sort of respected and cared about coaching. And so I just didn't, I didn't try to take time to remold their thinking. I just didn't re-sign them and bring them back. And, and, but I never did replace that caliber. Of guy, you know, and so we were never a, a, a shut down defense at any time. And, and normally, and we'll see this again Sunday, your defense has to play well once you get in those playoffs. You know, my, my Super Bowl team with the Rams get, the offense gets all the credit, but the NFC Championship game was won by the defense. Well, <laughs> we didn't be- score a touchdown until the last pass of the game. Well, as long as we're on that for a moment, and then I want to kind of, kind of veer off. Do you have a uh, particular pick for this Sunday? Well, you know, you know, I, I'm not a great pick guy. Uh, if I, as serious as I could be about picking and not advising to anybody, uh, uh, sitting in my house, my wife and I will bet 50 cents on the game, and I, I'll take the Giants, okay? And part of it is emotional because my Peter Junta, their secondary coach, worked for me for eight years. Their, their field goal kicker we helped develop in Kansas City, uh, Lawrence Tynes, Tom, uh, Tom Coughlin is a personal friend. Uh, I know more people in the Giant organization than I do New England organization. Uh, and plus, I think through uh, the, the suit-up roster that lines up to play on Sunday, they have overall better caliber athletes, especially on defense, I think they could also surprise people and run the ball a little bit better than they have all year, and uh, and I'm not sure New England could do that. And I, I think the pass rush could be very violent, especially on, a, on an artificial service. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I would I would pick the Giants. Yeah, I'm with you on that one too. I think at the end, defense is going to win that game for them. I think they have a better defense, but the, uh, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, they have the. A number of years ago, they had that great game, and and, yeah. and I think you know, and and also with what um, uh, Bob Kraft has been through, you know, it might make a slight bit of a difference uh, losing Myra. But the uh, no question, yeah. Um, I, but I agree with you. I think that the Giants are geared for that, and I do know the Tish family, and I do know a lot of the players on the team. Let me yeah. ask you a question. So, 
you gave us what it was like to lose a Super Bowl. What would you say is the feeling of winning a Super Bowl like? You know, it, it, it is, first off, you can't prepare yourself emotionally prior to winning one to be able to, to put a great vocabulary behind all your feelings. You know, you just, it's, it's, for me anyway, it was too big to put in proper terms. Uh, but the greatest, to me, I, the first thing that rushed me was the, the, the feeling of sharing an unbelievable experience with my family, my team, my organization, and my city. Uh, it just, it, that gave me such a great feeling. And I had a, an extra organization to share that with. I had my players from Philadelphia, my friends on that organ, in that organization. I knew they were pulling for me. And, and I was able to, I know I was able to share that experience with those people as well, you know, like the Reggie Wilkes. And, of course, Wilbert was with me. Carl Harrison was with me. John Bunding was with me. But all the guys that weren't with me, I know emotionally they were with me. So uh, being able to share that kind of an experience and bring joy to so many people is a very humbling feeling. And I can remember that parade the next day at home, freezing, freezing cold. I mean, you cannot believe it. And you were on this great big Budweiser trailer uh, wagon with the big uh, big horses out in front, Clydesdales out there, and you look down, and here's, here's people standing in mink coats, and here's people that are, are damn near homeless, all sharing the same excited feeling side by side. Uh, nobody, no status, no racial, no nothing. A true uh, excitement shared by an entire city, an organization. It was very humbling, very humbling to me. It's really the greatness of the sport. You know, that, that moment that you're describing when everybody comes together with a common dream and a common hope and a common spirit is so important. It's what this yeah. country, to me, is all about, and it's what, you know, a lot of what you personify and, and how you talk about the sport because, you know, at that moment, I mean, you know, you see it every Sunday. I mean, people come out there and and they're into it. I mean, there's no, no two ways about it. No question. That's why right after the game, the first thing I said, once we said we're world champions, I said, get Carol. You know, we just celebrated our 50th, 56th wedding anniversary. She's been my best assistant coach my whole life. Okay. So I wanted, so I went over there to the wall and I, just before I got there, she said to the guards downstairs, uh, catch me, I'm coming down. He said, that's, you can't come on the field. She says, you better catch me, I'm jumping. So she jumped off the wall in the stadium and the guard caught her and then my grandkids started coming and people started grabbing those kids and before I know it I have one of my uh, like a four or five year old grandson on my shoulders and we're talking about we won the Super Bowl you know uh, it it was and then we went over to the podium where they start giving the awards and all that and you, you know it was an unbelievable experience and uh, I will never forget it I, I thought possibly we could duplicate it in Kansas City and the only real sorrow I feel in my entire career is that I wasn't able to hand that Lombardi trophy to Lamar Hunt, the guy that named the Super Bowl the Super Bowl, because he was by far an un unbelievable human being and so much deserved to have that trophy handed to him one more time. It had to be highly emotional when you decided to retire uh, from the Chiefs. Uh, it was. It was, but I knew it was the right time, Jim, because late in the season, my last year there, I was going on 70 years old, 
69 years old, and I, I don't, my mind, when you're tired and you get older, it just doesn't work as good. And I found myself sometimes, I said, my gosh, where's my head? I can't even think, you know. And see, you live in a constant state of being tired when you're a head coach in the National Football League. There's no such thing as an eight-hour sleep night, you know. Uh, you're lucky if you get four hours sleep. And you do that at 70 years old. Boy, I'll tell you, by game day, even though you had a good night's sleep the night before the game, if you were able to sleep at all, uh, you were fresher. You know, you started freshening up on Friday night, freshen up a little bit on Saturday night, and then game day. But uh, I just felt, you know, they're paying you a lot of money now to do this, and they deserve to have the best possible leadership. And somebody that's mine is not a little tired, doesn't work as well. So uh, that's one of the reasons. And it was, it was just time. You know, we won 10 games. We were a good season. Uh, we were a good football team. The fans loved it. You know, we were selling out, and it was an exciting team to watch. And a 10-win team normally makes the playoffs, you know. Uh, and I thought... Now we deserve. We were a good enough team to be very successful in the playoffs, but we didn't get there. You know, we, well, that just wasn't that year. Well, we have a few minutes left. We do have another caller. I want to get him on because I know he's another one who's very fond of you. We have Mike Quick calling in. Mike, are you on the line? Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, How are you? Mike Quick. How you doing, buddy? Coach. Nice to hear your voice. Uh, it's great to hear your voice, man. Yeah. I just wanted to call in and say hello because this guy has certainly impacted my life. He drafted me in 1982 out of NC State, and, um, you know, it's been a great thing for me ever since. And I just wanted to call in and say hello. and Thank you, Michael. Wish, and I wish you, you very well. Hey, Coach, and I have another guy standing here beside me, the big guy, number 17. <laughs> I love that Hold guy. Hold on one second for Harold Mr. Carmichael. Carmichael. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Coach. Hey, hey, Harold, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing super. I really am. I've, I've had a great day here. I've seen, I've oh. been around a number of Hall of Fame players and one Hall of Fame coach in Marv Levy just left the luncheon and I'm getting on a plane to fly home and going to watch a game Sunday with Herb Lusk, Reverend Lusk. Oh, is that right? Is yeah. that right? Yeah, well, I just wanted to call in and, you know, say hello to you and, uh, wish you well. Hey, you yeah, belong uh, us. You guys, both of you guys belong in this Hall of Fame. You know, you know, if Harold Carmichael and Mike Quick were playing today, you know how many balls they would catch? You know, old hard head head coach for me. You know, we think you got to run the ball forty times and, and throw it twenty five. You know, and boy, if you get out of that ratio, you're getting extravagant. Well, you know, I also had to have speed because they wouldn't even look at me right now. I was too slow. You'd be surprised. You'd well, be surprised. I, I, I appreciate Mike and Harold that you called in to current life and and joined uh, joined Dick uh, in this uh, Super Bowl special. And, and I appreciate you. your time. I really do. One more question because we're running kind of short on time, but I know you got this great place in rural Pennsylvania where you like to decompress, and yeah. I guess if I asked you for three of the most important things in your life, you would say family, football, and wine. So tell me yeah. a little bit about that in the next, next minute or so. Well, you know, I was born in Calistoga, Northern California, in the Napa Valley, in the wine country, and uh, I grew up around wine People. My great grandfather originally went into the Napa Valley to make wine, owned some vineyard. In fact, in fact, part of that vineyard I still get grapes from today to make our wine. My grandfather Vermeil made our family wines, and I used to help him as a young man. My brother and I helped do some of the physical labor in making our wines, and I just always had the interest. In the mid nineties, I started making as a hobby. 
150, 200 cases of wine with a friend there, Paul Smith, that owns the On the Edge Winery. And after I got left the Kansas City Chiefs, a couple of real good friends of mine, including Carl Peterson, said, hey, let's uh, let's turn the hobby into a wine business. So we pooled our money, and we start Instead of making 150 to 200 cases of wine, we're making between 4,000 and 5,000 cases of wine now. Now I have to work. Now I have to work at it. And But it's been fun, and uh, we have our meetings in the Napa Valley coming up here in February, which we'll have fun together. And, uh, you know, I'm, I enjoy it. It's something uh, it, it gives me a little group to lead. Uh, we're, we're, it's going well. You know, uh, people, if they're interested, can go online and check us out on VermeoWines.com. Just Google Vermeo Wines, and you'll find us in there. It's a very small family organization. The, the lady that owns the 170-acre vineyard that we get our grapes from, we don't own the vineyard. But she was my babysitter when I was born 75 years ago, okay? So I've known her all my life. I Like I tease her kids, I said, I've known your mother longer than you have. You know, so, uh, and, and her, her daughter runs our tasting room in Calistoga. Her son-in-law is our winemaker and on the edge winery and our partner. So it's a little, it's a small group of people producing four to five thousand cases of quality wine, uh, medium price wines, not cheap, but medium price wines. And, uh, and we're having fun with it. And it's, so we'll, we even will, for the first time. we will, unfortunately our time's up. We will talk about your vineyard and hopefully you'll join us again on the show. And, I'd love to, Jim. I'd love uh, to. You know, Dick, uh, first of all, we, we want to thank Dick Vermeil for sharing his journey with us. This is Jimmy Gould, host of A Current Life on Voice America Variety Channel. Uh, we ask you to stay tuned uh, for next Friday at 3 o'clock East Coast time where Sheila Ward, the award-winning actress and founder of Hope Village, will be joining us. Until next time, we wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, success, and our deepest appreciation to one of the greatest coaches that ever coached in a game, Coach Dick Vermeil. And Dick, all my best. Thank you. Best to you. Thank you for being with us, my friend. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.